Spock says, you prescribed rest, doctor. And he's strumming on his instrument, is he, Dana? <laughs> I will rest right when I'm finished here, doctor. <laughs> Just leave me alone for a few minutes. <laughs> Welcome to Damn It, Jim, the podcast, a fun and fascinating look at Star Trek, the original series. My name is Dana Smith, and as always, I'm joined by my good friend, Dan Calzaretta. Good evening, Dan. Dana, how are you doing this evening? I'm on the mend. I've had a cold almost since last time we talked. I noticed that there was some snottage happening in that last conversation. (laughs) It was just the start then, and I'm blaming you for giving me a virus through the computer. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. But I'm on the mend. Good. We'll see if I make it through this podcast. Oh, you'll make it. Even if it's kicking and screaming, you're going to make it. <laughs> yeah. No, that's our, that's our listeners. They're the ones kicking and screaming. So, Dan, we got a lot to talk about tonight. Do you want to dive into the listener comments? Yeah, let's do it. So our good friend Zoom Kwan uh, wrote to us again and said, uh, great podcast as always. Did I mention that Zoom Kwan's a very intelligent listener? He is. I mean, he likes our podcast. He has to be. Yeah. And he says, I think the Romulans do have Clint Howard because that second round of drinks that Spock and the Romulan commander had in the square glasses was Tranya. He says, also, the commander was a strong female character, but her skirt was also the shortest I've ever seen on Star Trek. <laughs> Maybe there's a correlation between IQ and hem length. Then he has in parentheses brain and brain. <laughs> Wrong episode, Dana. <laughs> I think it was Tranya. Well, we thought it was Tang. Well, I mean, I think it literally was Tang, right? Because there is no such thing as Tranya <laughs> in real life. You don't think the Romulans drank Tang? No, no, what I'm saying, hold on. I'm not making myself clear now. I, did I tell you I gave blood last week? Maybe there's a hangover from that. No, what I meant was, I think on the set, as the prop, they were using Tang. But I think in the show, even though they don't say it, it probably was Tranya. Does that not make sense? <laughs> Sure. Moving on. Pam McClung said, I finally succumbed to COVID. Oh, no. She apologized for being away. She says, at the very worst possible time of the year, but your podcast has helped me get through the doldrums. <laughs> she says, even listen to this episode twice, if you can believe it. And she says, this was a great episode. Glad you mentioned Tang, because I thought the same thing when I saw the orange drink. And she goes on to say, I also thought it was great that they had a female in power like that on a show in the 60s. But then, as I mauled that over, she still falls into those stereotypes of the time. One, being fooled by Spock, being ruled by her emotions, maybe not as progressive as we could have hoped for. Thank you, Pam. That was great comment on that. Yeah, I mean, absolutely, Dana. We, we've we talked about since probably the first episode how in some ways Star Trek was really progressive and in other ways it was a product of its time and very sexist. And Steve Hosa, who apparently has gone to a lot of these conventions, sent us pictures of the commander and of Tal that he had signed by the actors and uh, it's very cool i'm glad that people share that with us Uh, again we're hoping in 2024 we can make it to at least one of these conventions we're gonna have to have headshots though right so we can sign them and and sell them (laughs) so dan do you have some comments or emails you want to share i do we got an email from mike flynn who says i have an idea for another show to cover dragnet 1967 to 1970 and also the fact that dragnet comes from the same tv era as star trek i don't know your listener demographic 
graphic, but one of the things I like about your show is the bits about the day in history and the actor stories and bios. I grew up watching these shows and actors and find it really interesting to listen to. And then on YouTube, Olaf Olafson, I, I'm going to assume that's his name, so I'm not going to laugh at it, but it's kind of funny. <laughs> Olaf Olafson. The episode Spock's Brain was written by Gene Kuhn. I don't know what happened. Maybe he was pissed at Roddenberry for abandoning the show in season three. Imagine the collective sigh at 10.58 p.m. on a Friday night when thousands of people realized their letter writing campaign was a giant waste of time. Love the podcast. Squeal like a Mugatu boy and the nuclear pile. Funny stuff. <laughs> Thanks, Olaf. That's very cool. I appreciate that one. Yep. And also on YouTube, Barry O'Brien asks, where are you guys? <laughs> I'm not sure what he means by that, Dana. <laughs> I mean, we're here. <laughs> what, do you, what do you think he means? That's all. That's the whole message? That was it. <laughs> where are you guys? Well, Barry, if, if you want to clarify, send us another, you know, either email or message on YouTube. Or leave a phone message. Or a phone message. Phone message would be great. Yeah, that'd be great too. Speaking of phone messages, we did get one this week, Dana, from Bill Gallo. And here's what he has to say. I really enjoyed the Enterprise incident. Thought you guys did a great job covering it. And, you know, I always thought that maybe the commander was trying to seduce Spock. Not so much because she was turned on. He's an officer of the Federation. He would have a lot of information they could use. If she could win him over, it would be an incredible coup for her. Have a great evening and uh, love the show. Take care. Thanks, Bill. That's something we had not really discussed, but that's a good point. So, Dana, that's it for this week. Okay, Dan, we're stepping into Season 3, Episode 3, The Paradise Syndrome. We start out with a scenic image of tall trees and a nice placid lake. I was thinking it could be the Pacific Northwest or maybe even Minnesota. Little did I know it was right outside of L.A. Kirk, Spock, and McCoy beam down. Kirk mentions the similarities to Earth and asks, what are the odds of exact duplication half a galaxy away? <laughs> Oh, what are those odds? Apparently, they're pretty fucking good. <laughs> <laughs> they are pretty good because, Dana, how many times have we seen this, right? A, a planet that looks just like Earth. I can't wait till they come to a planet that looks Jupiter, Saturn, Venus, Uranus, anything. I don't know about Uranus, but uh, all those other ones would be fine. <laughs> but not Pluto because that's a planetoid now, right? Did they change it back? Got a lot of complaints about Pluto being out of the planets. So maybe, maybe they did. I hope so. Because, you know, that really... Uh, okay, sorry. I, I got to go off on this little ramble for a second. You're a planet for a long time, right? And then you get downgraded to a planetoid? It sounds like a hemorrhoid or something. It just doesn't seem like it should be allowed. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> like a hemorrhoid. <laughs> It is a minor planet. But even that seems a little degrading to me. Either you're a planet or you're not. That is a question. Who makes up these, like, these rules? I saw somewhere where Neil deGrasse Tyson was on the panel that came up with that. Really? So let's, let's write him. Okay, we'll write him. Maybe he'll be on the show. Spock points out that the odds of a exact duplicate planet half a galaxy away are actually astronomical. Obviously, he hasn't been paying attention to all the other planets that they've visited so far. <laughs> <laughs> so as they round a corner, they see Opie and Andy fishing at the fishing hole. <laughs> it is the same lake, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. So as they round a corner, they see a giant obelisk. Spock says it's a metal of some kind, an alloy resistant to probe. Says readings can't even measure its age accurately. Spock steps up next to the obelisk and checks out the symbols, and, and he says it's writing of some kind. 
Wow, that was a brilliant deduction. <laughs> Structures of this complexity require extremely sophisticated building apparatus, the kind usually found in cultures surpassing or equaling our own. Like a hammer and a chisel? <laughs> I mean, what would you need to build that obelisk? You'd need, you know, build metal work. Okay, and they've been doing that since like the Iron Age or something? Iron Age, that's a good name for it, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> See, that also didn't make any sense to me. I mean, I thought the obelisk was cool, by the way. Really loved that. But what he said just, you know, not, didn't make sense. McCoy says, uh, meadows and no meteor craters. The whole place is an enigma, biologically and culturally. So Kirk asked for the nearest group of life forms. Spock points out there is a concentration of life forms nearby. Then he goes on to say that an asteroid is heading towards this planet. If they intend to deflect it, they only have 30 minutes. Kirk suggests they check out the life forms. Maybe Maybe see if they're worth saving. <laughs> <laughs> so they spy a village of what appears to be American Indians. McCoy asks if they should contact them and tell them about the asteroid. What happened to the prime directive? Yeah. <laughs> So Kirk says it would only confuse the Indians. Then he says they need to get back to the Enterprise. So as they walk along, Kirk stares off at the people. McCoy asks, what's wrong? And Kirk's like, what? Oh, nothing. It's just so peaceful, uncomplicated, no problems, no command decisions, just living. Except for this huge freaking asteroid that's about to blast the <laughs> shit out of this planet. <laughs> Other than that. Yeah, it'd be perfect. So Kirk shrugs it off and says he wants another look at the obelisk. He walks toward the obelisk as Spock and McCoy continue to look out at the peaceful tribe. He walks up the steps. Then he pulls out his communicator and calls the Enterprise. Suddenly, a door opens up and he falls in. It's like a trap door almost. Yeah, it's like right under his feet. Inside the obelisk, we see him tumble down the steps. He tries to raise himself up and there's like a panel there. And it triggers some sort of defense mechanism, I'm guessing. And he is shot shocked and he passes out on the panel. So it's, it's obvious that not only is this an obelisk on the outside, but on the inside, it's some high tech kind of thing that we don't really know what it is at this point. So next we get Spock providing the captain's log, stating that they cannot find the captain. He calls up to the Enterprise and tells Scotty there will be two to beam up. McCoy throws a fit and says, Jim could be hurt or even dying. Spock tries to explain about the approaching asteroid. McCoy just says the devil with the asteroid. So Spock takes McCoy back to second grade, picks up two rocks from the ground, probably contemplating smashing McCoy's head in. <laughs> At first, I was thinking, oh, this is it. He's going to get it now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And he demonstrates the importance of getting to the deflection point in time to save the planet using these two rocks. If they don't, all life on the planet, including Kirk, will be wiped out. He explains once the asteroid is diverted, they can resume the search for the captain. And McCoy finally sees Spock's point. Inside the obelisk, Kirk is wandering around dazed and confused. This has to be sometime later and he asks where am i and he starts up the stairs and the trap door opens and he ascends as two native women approach he comes out and they think he is some sort of deity you could see why they would think that so one of the native women approaches him and takes his hand to her forehead and she says, we are your people. We have been waiting for you to come to us. On the Enterprise, Spock is providing the captain's log. We've been en route to the asteroid for several hours. Our delay on the planet's surface has made it imperative that we proceed at maximum warp speed for a period which exceeds the recommended safety margin. So on that note, we see Scotty in engineering. Scotty looks like he's about ready to shit his pants. <laughs> For the second week in a row. <laughs> he calls up to Spock and says... 
I can't give you warp nine much longer, Mr. Spock. These engines are beginning to show signs of stress. Stress or not, we cannot reduce speed. I do not intend to miss that deflection point. All right, but we're moving further into the danger range all the time. If these circuits... Objection noted, Mr. Scott. Carry on. Back on the planet, Kirk is in a teepee with three of the native people. The elder is speaking that they have been waiting for his arrival. A woman and a man bring a boy in, and they say that the boy got tangled up in a net and fell in the river. They pulled him out quickly, but he does not move. One of the Indians goes to the boy and listens to his chest. He says there is not sound in his body. Kirk stands up and goes to the boy and does mouth-to-mouth on the boy. Oh, that's what he was doing. Okay, I was a little nervous at first. The boy starts to move, and Kirk says he'll be all right and he did this thing where he like pumped his legs yeah is that part of the protocol i don't recall that no <laughs> okay so what you're saying dana we should not use what kirk did as a training tape for artificial resuscitation is that that what you're saying yeah the mouth to mouth is you know i mean okay the moving the legs is not going to do anything so the elder says my people are grateful only a god can breathe life into the dead do you still question he asked the other guy then he says give him the medicine badge. So the woman, whose name Miramani, takes the headband with the metal disc from Salish's head. Salish was the medicine man. Yeah. And puts it on Kirk. We see Salish, the former medicine man, looks kind of concerned slash upset. Oh, yeah. He is pissed, Dana. Yeah. Yeah. On the Enterprise, we see them approaching the asteroid. Spock calls down to engineering. Full power, Mr. Scott. Scotty says, the relays will reject the overload, Mr. Spock. Spock says, then bypass the relays and go to manual control. Don't make me come down there and bitch slap you. <laughs> well, Spock's swearing at everybody in this episode. <laughs> yeah, he's got an attitude, I'm telling you. He does, yeah. Scotty says, uh, we'll burn out the engines. And Spock says, I want full power, Mr. Scott. And Scotty reluctantly agrees. Scotty looks at the board. He goes, all right, you lovelies, hold together. Spock brings the ship to a stop. They prepare to activate the deflectors. Power suddenly drops. Spock calls to engineering, maintain full power. Didn't I just tell you this? You know, when I <laughs> called down the last time? Just like 20 seconds ago? Don't make me go down there, I'm telling you. <laughs> I still got those rocks I picked up on the ground. <laughs> Scotty says the dilithium crystal circuits are failing and need to be replaced. Spock says not now. They fire at the asteroid. Sulu reports the asteroid was not deflected enough. Spock orders new coordinates, putting them in the direct path of the asteroid. He says they can use the phasers to break the asteroid in two. Well, McCoy, who's on the bridge, because where else would he be? Of course, yeah. Worries it might also cripple the ship and cause them to be destroyed. How would he know, like, the engineering of all this? Wouldn't that be Scotty's kind of realm? So Spock says they'll be able to move out of the way of the asteroid using impulse engines. McCoy says Jim won't be able to get out of its path. Spock says that's a calculated risk we must take. So, yeah, don't worry about the rest of the people on the planet. It's just Jim now we got to worry about. So, And the thing is, if they don't try to deflect it, he's going to die anyway, right? Yeah. On the planet, back at the lodge, Kirk is... Is hollowing out a gourd. You know, at first I thought he was making a birdhouse. So Miramani comes in and asks if he would like to bathe now. Yeah, now hold on. When she comes in... <laughs> 
He's holding the gourd in a way that reminded me of the infamous stalactite incident from an episode in season one. What are little girls made of? Yes. So now we have two of these images. Listeners, you're going to have to look up this image or we'll put it on our Facebook page. But she asked him if he wants to bathe now. Yeah, they must have advanced a little bit along in the relationship already. That's true. Or he was really stinky. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Maybe it's just a hint, you know, uh, wink, wink, nudge, <laughs> nudge. Yeah. Oh, maybe you want to bathe now, please. <laughs> he was still wearing his uniform. Kirk asked that she tell him about the wise ones. And Miramani says, the wise ones brought us here from far away. They chose a medicine chief to keep the secret of the temple and use it when the sky darkens. So Kirk says, then the secrets were passed from father to son. And Kirk says, why then doesn't Salish use his knowledge? And she says his father never passed the secrets on to him. So two women enter the tent bearing food. The elder follows and says they wish to honor him, but they do not know what he wants to be called. Kirk looks confused again, and he struggles, and he says, Kerr, Kerr, and the elder says, Kerrock. The elder worries they have displeased him, and Kirk says, everything is great, everything is peaceful, and your people are happy. Kirk says, I am happy and at peace. I'm not certain, but I've never felt this way before. Kirk asks Miramani, why is everyone so sure? Sure, he can help. And she says, you gave life to the child and you came from the Stone Temple. Pilots, Stone Temple Pilots. I wonder if they that's where they got their name. I was wondering the same thing. Hmm. I mean, that, I didn't think about that till just now. Wow, you're kind of slow. <laughs> I thought about that when they said it. <laughs> <laughs> Kirk says he needs time. And she says, here, there is much time, especially if you bathe. He must really smell bad, Dana. Been, I think it's been a couple of weeks. Has it been a couple of weeks already at this point? At least a week. Yeah. Back on the Enterprise, Chekhov reports they have located the area to fire the phasers. Spock says they'll fire the phaser at maximum intensity, narrow beam to split the fissure wide open. That asteroid looked dumb. To me, it looked like a big blob of icky Play-Doh. It almost looked like a brain, actually, Dana. Like a potato? Potato or a brain? Like a potato brain. Yeah. Potato and potato. What is potato? <laughs> Sorry, wrong episode. <laughs> McCoy says, you make it sound like you're cutting a diamond. Spock says, why the fuck are you always here? <laughs> <laughs> you know, why is he always there to cause trouble and just interrupt? So they begin firing on the asteroid. In engineering, Scotty says, the Vulcan won't be satisfied until these panels are puddled with lead. <laughs> That's a good line, actually. In engineering, we hear a crackling, sizzling sound, and the lights waver and then go out. Scotty groans, my Barons, my poor Barons. What is that? Barons is a child, I think. So we go back to the planet and see Kirk is sleeping. He is now dressed in Indian garb. Someone comes in. And we see Miramani as she kneels down next to Kirk. He sits up and she says the ritual cloak is finished and she wants to set a date when they'll be joined together. Kirk says, name the joining day. And she says, the sooner our happiness together begins, the longer it will last. Tomorrow. They kiss. We cut away back to uh, Spock's quarters. So in Spock's quarters, we see an image of the obelisk as on the monitor. Spock looks at it as if he's meditating upon it. Scotty calls up and says, don't ask for any more warp nine speeds, Mr. Spock. Our star drive is completely burned out. The only thing we have left is impulse power. Wait, hold on a second. Star drive? What, what is star drive? It's something the writer made up for this episode. We've never heard that before. Never. So we're in season freaking three. It's not like <laughs> season one, they haven't 
quite worked out the nomenclature yet. Star drive. I kind of like the term. I think it's cool yeah but you know what is it i mean i think he means warp drive right yeah spock says uh estimated time for repair and scotty completely dismayed hanging here in space forever the only thing that'll fix these poor darlings is the nearest repair base next thing we see is mccoy standing in spock's quarters as he starts in on spock well spock you took your calculated risk in your calculated vulcan way and you lost you lost for us you lost for that planet and you lost for jim Spock says, I accept the responsibility, Doctor. Now get the f*** out of my quarters. <laughs> like he's just following him around. He, he won't leave the <laughs> poor guy alone. <laughs> Spock calls up to the bridge and says, Mr. Chekhov, resume heading 883 Mark 4-1. And McCoy says, back to that planet without warp speed? He says, it'll take months, Spock. And Spock says, exactly 59.23 days, Doctor. And that asteroid will be four hours behind us all the way. Corey says, well, then what's the use? He says, you haven't heard a word I've said. All you've been doing is staring at that blasted obelisk. Spock says, another calculated Vulcan wrist, Doctor. And McCoy leaves. So the asteroid is just four hours behind them. Yep. Yeah, asteroids are always behind you, though. Sorry, that was a bad attempt at a hemorrhoid joke. It didn't really go very far. <laughs> On the planet, we see Miramani with three other women as she prepares for her wedding. One of the women says, the joining means the end of darkness. And Miramani agrees and says, a time of joy for all our people. So next Next thing we see is Kirk getting his face painted. He is standing by the obelisk. The elder is painting his face, tells him about the path and the ceremony, and basically says, uh, when I walk away, you will wait, and then you will follow. We hear Kirk's thoughts as the elder walks away, as he smiles and says he has never known so much happiness, even though he apparently has no memory of what happened before. He just knows he's never had you know, so much <laughs> happiness before. And the way he kind of throws his hands up in the air and then hugs himself, very weird. Yeah. Next thing we see is Kirk walking this path and Salish jumps out with knife in hand and says he cannot permit this joining. By the way, that prop knife. Oh, I don't know if you saw it. It, it was obviously a prop rubber knife. Right after that, there's an overhead shot of the two of them. And it's the stuntman for Kirk. Yeah. I mean, it's so obviously the stuntman for Kirk. This guy must have gotten the role full time in season two, right? I think so. Yeah. Kirk says, nobody is asking for your permission. And Salish says, then you must strike me dead. And Kirk responds, I have no intention of striking you dead. Did Shakespeare write this stuff, Dan? <laughs> That's what we've wondered many times, Dana. So Salish lunges at him and Kirk dodges, but the knife hits his hand and Salish sees blood on Kirk's hand and says, you bleed. Behold a God who bleeds. He takes great joy in knowing that Kirk can bleed. So then we see the stuntman fight. The real Kirk steps back in and does a judo flip and pins Salish to the ground. Salish tells him to kill him. He says, I will not rest until I have proven that you are not a God. And Kirk throws the knife away and leaves Salish on the ground as he walks away. So the next thing we see is an ornamental gown being draped over Kirk's shoulders. It was like all full of feathers and stuff. It looked like colorful feathers. Miramani steps close to him and they turn together to face the elder. So she is also encompassed by this big cloak. We return to the Enterprise in close proximity to the asteroid. In Spock's quarters, he is pacing. McCoy enters and says, I thought you were going to report to sickbay. Spock says, there isn't time, doctor. I must decipher these obelisk symbols. McCoy says, you've been trying to do that ever since we started back to that planet. 58 days. Oh, so we now know there's a passage of time. And Spock says, I'm aware of that, Doctor, and thank you for informing the audience. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah, that's so true. Yeah, very obvious. I'm also aware when we arrive at the planet, we'll barely have four hours to affect rescue. McCoy says, my diagnosis is exhaustion brought on from overwork and guilt. You're blaming yourself for crippling this ship just as we blamed you. And most of us still do. (laughs) (laughs) My prescription is rest. Now, do I have to call the security guards to enforce it? Spock goes over to the bed and lies down. McCoy leaves and Spock gets right back up out of the bed and returns to his desk. Back on the planet, Kirk is frolicking in the woods with Miramani. He's shirtless. And we see Kirk, his sideburns are longer and his hair looks thicker. Oh, I mean, the sideburns look like Elvis sideburns from like 1968. Yeah, I think they were. They must have been inspired, don't you think, by Elvis? Yeah. So he catches her and they kiss and laugh. And Kirk says, I'm so happy. If it weren't from the dreams, my mind would be at peace. And she says, I thought those dreams were gone. And Kirk says, they were, but they've come back. And I see faces too, very dim. I feel I should know them. I feel my place is with them. Except for one guy who... I don't know. Bones. I see bones. and God, he gets on my nerves. <laughs> and I want to, I don't know what the term is. Mabinga him. I don't know what that means. And he says, I don't deserve this happiness. And she says, I have a gift for you. Gift? I bear your child. So Kirk is very ecstatic at this news, and he kisses her again and again. This is the first time in any of the Star Trek episodes that it is specifically called out that Kirk has impregnated somebody. But we have it implied in many episodes, or we've just decided that it was true. That he's fathered many children across the galaxy. Yeah, I don't see what the difference one more is going to make. <laughs> so next thing we see is Kirk is demonstrating how to build a canal and help irrigate the crops. He's drawing little lines in the dirt. And she goes to the hanging lamp that Kirk has made that you thought was a birdhouse. And the wind kicks up outside and they hear thunder. And she says, you must go to the temple. The people will be waiting. Kirk asks for what? She says, for you to save them. And Kirk says, it's just the wind. I cut some wind in here just a few minutes ago. (laughs) (laughs) He says, I cannot stop the wind. She says, soon the skies will darken. The earth will tremble. Only you can save us. So they've they've been through this before, it sounds like. Sounds like many times, yeah. Yeah. Kirk goes to the temple and puts his hands on it. He starts to pound on it. The temple, that is. (laughs) (laughs) So Salish sees him and smiles. I'm thinking, so why is he so happy? Like, yeah, we're all going to die, but I was right. Exactly. <laughs> Back on the Enterprise, McCoy enters Spock's quarters and says, I prescribe sleep. Spock says, you prescribe rest, doctor. Then he says, the symbols on the obelisk are not words. They are musical notes. And Dana, he's strumming on an instrument, I think, isn't he? Yeah, it's the Vulcan lyre. McCoy says, uh, musical notes? You mean it's nothing but a song? <laughs> I think someone has it out for DeForest Kelly in season three because they're giving him the stupidest lines. I mean, even going back into season two. And Spock says, in a way, yes. Other cultures, among them certain Vulcan offshoots, use musical notes as words. The tones correspond roughly to an alphabet. The obelisk is a marker, just as I thought. It was left by a super race known as the Preservers. How does he know this? Because it says smuckers on the thing. (laughs) (laughs) 
Okay, that's pretty good. That's pretty good, yeah. <laughs> At least for our audience here in North America. I don't know if they have smuckers on other parts of the planet. But the preservers, I mean, did it say that in the in the text on the obelisk? Is that where he gets that from? Well, then he goes on. It says, they passed through the galaxy, rescuing primitive cultures which were in danger of extinction and seeding them where they could live and grow and die later on from a giant asteroid that's going to pummel them to death. Well, Kirk's been seeding the galaxy too. Is he a preserver? He's just a seeder. McCoy says, I've always wondered why there were so many humanoids scattered out throughout the galaxy. Spock says, so have I. McCoy says, that's probably how the planet has survived all these centuries. The preservers put an asteroid deflector on the planet. <laughs> what? Preservers to asteroid deflector? Well, how did that come about? From McCoy? From anybody, really. But Spock says, uh, the obelisk has now become defective and is failing to operate. So back on the planet, the wind is kicking up. Salish leads a bunch of people to the temple, pointing at Kirk and calling him a false god. The people start throwing stones at him. Huge, like, you know, styrofoam stones. Yeah, and these people came prepared. So Miramani goes up to him wanting to be with them. Kirk tries to protect her. Stones are bouncing off of him, and I see like one or two stones hit her. Just then, McCoy and Spock beam down, and the people all run off. There's a violation of the Prime Directive. Not that's going to matter because the whole planet's going to be destroyed. <laughs> <laughs> so Spock and McCoy check on Kirk. He and Miramani are laying side by side. No blood anywhere. Not a drop. No bruising. Nothing, Dana. McCoy says he needs chapel and Spock calls up to the ship and chapel beams down as Kirk is babbling about Miramani, his wife. Spock asks his wife and McCoy says he's hallucinating and chapel gives Miramani a shot without even like scanning her. They called her down for Kirk, not for Miramani. Yeah, it's like, oh, well, you know, on my way over to Kirk, I'll just give this person a shot. I've got no idea what's wrong. Well, my question is, wouldn't it have been better to beam Kirk and McCoy up to the Enterprise where they've got like the whole sick bay? Miramani kind of stirs and Spock tells her the chapel has given her something for pain. And Spock asks her, why were the people stoning you? And Miramani says, Kira could not get back into the temple. So she passes out and Spock turns back to Kirk and McCoy reports that everything is functioning normally except his memory. He says it would take time to help him. And Sulu calls down and says the asteroid is 65 minutes to the edge of the safety margin. And Spock says time is not something that they have. He suggests that he does the Vulcan mind fusion. Hold on, hold on, sorry. <laughs> the what? <laughs> Is this like the star drive? Where where was this writer for the past two plus years? I mean, this writer apparently did not know anything about the show. So he puts both his hands on Kirk's face and Spock says, I am Spock. You are James Kirk. Our minds are moving closer, closer, closer. James Kirk, closer. Are they getting closer? Are those minds getting closer, Dana? I can't quite tell. Spock says, James Kirk. And Kirk calls out Miramani. And then Spock says, our minds are one. And Kirk yells, I am I am Kirok. I am Kirok. And Spock says, I am Kir. It goes on like this. <laughs> there's, there's more brilliant writing <laughs> just like this. Yeah. And finally, Spock breaks the link and McCoy says, what is it? And Spock says, his mind. He is an extremely dynamic individual. And Kirk sits up and says, it worked. Kirk immediately checks on Miramani. Spock asks him about being inside the structure. Kirk says, yes, there's a lot of scientific equipment in there. And Spock explains that the obelisk is a huge asteroid deflector. That's what McCoy told me. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> so it's got to be right. Yeah. Kirk says the symbols need to be deciphered. And Spock says he's he's done that to some extent. And McCoy and Chapel start helping Miramani like 40 minutes later. Spock explains the musical notes or tonal qualities in their proper sequence. And Kirk asks for Spock's communicator and says, I must have hit that when I contacted the ship. And Spock says, if you can remember your exact words. And Kirk calls up to the Enterprise and uses the same words he did before. And the trap door slides open. Kirk uh, tells Scotty to leave orbit if they cannot make the deflector work. Scotty's like, uh, we did leave orbit like an hour ago. <laughs> yeah. I can barely hear you. <laughs> <laughs> So Kirk looks at Miramani before he descends into the bowels of the obelisk. He tells McCoy to do what he can. Maybe beam her up to the Enterprise? Yeah, maybe. <laughs> Hello. Fox says you're a genius. You figured out this obelisk. <laughs> Why don't you go do some medicine? <laughs> Inside the obelisk, Spock and Kirk examine all the symbols and buttons. Spock says it's similar to deflector panels I've seen, but far more complicated. <laughs> Jesus Christ. <laughs> Kirk warns him about touching the wrong thing on the panel. Which he would know because he's seen every freaking deflector shield in the universe. <laughs> it's box is probably a memory beam. You must have activated it out of sequence. Dan, what's a memory beam? <laughs> <laughs> would it be an anti-memory beam? Yeah, it should be maybe an erasing beam, a neural eraser. I mean, uh, who knows, Dana? On the panel, Kirk sees more symbols and asks Spock if he can read them. And Spock says, I do have an excellent eye for musical notes, Captain. Kirk says, Spock, just press the right button before I call McCoy down here. <laughs> <laughs> and we beam Dr. Mabinga from the other part of the galaxy <laughs> to just take care of all you people. So Spock hesitates a minute, then he pushes a button, and we see a beam shoot out of the top of the obelisk. So it was one button, Dana. One freaking button why were there all the other buttons how about just a big button that says push this here i mean they obviously didn't have to aim it it apparently knew how to do that yeah and if these preservers are so freaking smart why didn't they just make it you know automatic yeah so we do see the asteroid has moved away next thing we see is miramani inside the teepee no reason to take her up to the enterprise so uh mccoy is next to her and kirk comes in and asks, asks about her and mccoy says she had had bad internal injuries and Kirk asks if she will live and McCoy says no <laughs> I'm sorry Dana I mean I don't mean to make fun of that but he can operate on a freaking brain right and he can't take her up to the ship and like repair this come on from a little stoning why was she still there no explanation Dana so Kirk goes to her and Miramani in pain says Kirok it is true you are safe and he says and so are your people and she says I knew you would save them my chief when I am better it will be as it was will it not and he said no because you're dying because this f wouldn't take you up to the enterprise where we have this really really good you know medicine tent <laughs> Miramani says, we will live long and happy lives. I will bear you many strong sons. I'll love you always. And Kirk says, and I'll love you, Miramani, always. So he kisses her and she smiles as they separate. And then she says, each kiss is as the first. And then she dies. And Kirk is just staring down at her, obviously sad. And then we start to see the credits. And that's how the show ends, Dan. Thank God.
So Dana, you have some information about some of the actors in this episode. Yeah, Dan. I thought the guy that played Salish looked familiar. That was uh, Rudy Solari. But he shows up in a lot of TV shows of the day. He was in Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea, Mission Impossible, the FBI, and Police Story. Played, you know, characters on both sides of the law, it seems like. He became an acting coach later on and director and started a program in acting at UCLA. And he headed up an acting house inside the Cannon Theater in LA and after he died the theater was named for him. They changed the name later though, didn't they? Yeah, they did. They changed it to something else later on. Yeah, because they realized, holy crap, we named it after who? This was not uh, his best role by far. Well, and it's not his fault it was poorly written. It was just his fault that it was poorly acted. (laughs) God, I hope none of his family are listening to this. So uh, the woman that played Miramani is named Sabrina Scharf. Interesting fact, Dan, at age 15, she eloped with her algebra teacher. The marriage was annulled three years later. I I wish I could annul myself from the show. Wait, are you talking about the podcast or the or the, or the Paradise Syndrome? I, don't answer that question. I, I don't want to know. I just don't want to know. So, Dan, her big claim to fame was that she was in the film Easy Rider with Peter Fonda. Uh, she's also in the movie Waterhole Number 3 and Hell's Angels on Wheels. Uh, she worked a lot in TV shows. She showed up in Wild Wild West, Gunsmoke, I Dream of Jeannie, and a short-lived TV show called The Virgin President, where she played the president's girlfriend. In 1976, she ran for California State Senate, losing only by 700 votes. Wow. She retired from acting in the mid-70s and got her law degree. And last we knew, she was working in real estate. Wait, she's alive? She's alive. Oh, we got to get her on. She's young. Well, wow. So she's probably, what? I don't know, 70, 80? How old would she be? Uh, she's like in her late 70s, I think. So Dan, do you have anything to add? Well, this is about the actors in the show. Although the show specifically says that the people of the village were American Indians, none of the actors with main roles or even speaking lines were actually Native American. This was not just a problem of Star Trek. Most television shows of that era, and even, let's face it, up into you know relatively recent times, Native Americans were not played by Native American actors. So, Dana, what about a dilemma for this episode? Kirk, with no memory, struggles to be truly happy. He feels like he doesn't deserve to be happy. He actually comes out and says that. And uh, so I was wondering, as a kind of a theme or, you know, dilemma for everybody, is happiness impossible for a person in leadership? Don't we all want some kind of paradise or Shangri-La? Do you want to move on to the best and worst of this episode, Dan? Yeah, let's do it. How about a best part, Dana? This might sound odd, but the attempts to destroy the asteroid and how it affects the ship, I like that it wasn't successful and it caused problems for the Enterprise. I thought that was, it seemed more realistic that way, that everything wasn't solvable. Do you have a best part, Dan? Scotty getting mad at Spock for driving the Enterprise too hard. And just the things he's saying in engineering that Spock can't hear. How about another best part for you? I did enjoy the beautiful, peaceful setting on the planet. Great way to start the show, I thought. Made me want to be there. Dan, do you have another best part for us? I actually liked the ending where Miramani died and Kirk is there. I actually thought it was pretty touching. Maybe it was one of the better endings since the end of City on the Edge of Forever. I kind of liked it. Yeah, I didn't hate it. There were some stupid things that led up to it. Like the first 58 minutes. And then... 
there was one good scene at the end. How about a worst part for you, Dana? They determine Kirk is okay, but they pay no attention to the woman next to him. They make zero attempt to save her. How about you? Do you have a worst part for us, Dan? Yeah, the obvious racial stereotypes that I kind of mentioned and the kind of quote, white man is savior message were horrible. Again, I know it was a different time, but still not good, Dana. How about another worst part for you? Thousands of M-class planets, but the providers put these poor, never advancing Indians on a planet they apparently know is going to be destroyed by an asteroid or why put the asteroid deflector on the planet. And then they make it sound like an asteroid comes around there like every few months. I, I want to find the writer and shake him by the lapels and just be like, what were you thinking? <laughs> Do you have another worst part, Dan? Earlier in the episode, Scotty says, we got no warp drive. We're only on impulse engines. We're not going to get the ship repaired anywhere out here because there's no star base. What happens after they deflect the asteroid? Where does the ship get repaired? Dana, how about one more worst part? McCoy's typical attacks on Spock for doing what is necessary. But I mean, when Spock's in command, he thinks nothing of but like challenging him for everything he says. So, Dana, what happened on this date in history? Well, Dan, this aired on October 4th, 1968. The number one song in the U.S. was still Hey Jude by the Beatles. And the number one song in the U.K. was still Those Were the Days by Mary Hopkin. The prototype of the Tupolev Tu-154, a jet airliner with a capacity of 164 passengers and the most common method of air travel in the Soviet Union, made its first flight on that day. Did it crash into a huge crowd of people killing thousands? Nope. Damn. Okay. On October 3rd, the Peruvian Army General Juan Alvarado led a coup d'etat and overthrew the South American nation's president. The pre-dawn change of power was accomplished without bloodshed, and the former president was flown by Peruvian Air Force plane to exile in Buenos Aires. Did that crash into a huge crowd of people killing thousands? Sorry, Dan. No. Damn. (laughs) And finally, on October 5th, the Troubles, almost 30 years of violence between Protestants and Catholics in Northern Ireland, began when policemen at Derry attacked a group of demonstrators marching for the Northern Ireland Civil Rights Association. Do I jump to the counts? Wait, there's no, really? There's no tragedy? I I looked several days all around. I couldn't find anything. Okay. That's funny that you looked. I'm glad you looked. I appreciate that, Dana. (laughs) You want to move to the counts, Dana? Yeah. How about the dead crewman count? There was none, Dan. I'm exasperated that we haven't had a crewman die in a while, so we're stuck at 47. It's been a long time. Although I was really hoping that McCoy was going to get killed in this episode, so... How about the shirtless Kirk Rip shirt Kirk count? Dan, I know you were the same, but I was pretty excited when I saw Kirk run through the woods without a shirt on. It was great. We got one this week, so that moves us up to 18. All right. How about the he's dead count? Nope. So we are at 15 still. How about I'm a doctor? not an expert in every other freaking thing on the ship except medicine count. I am still mad at McCoy because he just hasn't said anything wise like that. So we are still at eight. How about the supreme being count? Uh, Well, Kirk was a supreme being for a while, but I didn't count that. So I left it at zero and that means we're still at 10. 
How about the violation of the Prime Directive count? This is a touchy one, Dan, but I think there was a violation of the Prime Directive. The most obvious one is that uh, Spock and McCoy beam down and the people see him beam down. Yeah. So where does that leave us, Dana? That puts us up to 11, Dan. How about take over the Enterprise count? No, it seemed like McCoy wanted to, but uh, he wasn't <laughs> able to. So uh, we're still at 10 on that. And finally, who's commanding the Enterprise? We had two again. We had Scotty and then later Spock. So that puts us up to 27. 27. All right, man, that, that one's going way up when the other ones are hanging kind of stagnant. Dana, I'm kind of two minds of this episode. On one hand, there were some pieces, individual small <laughs> pieces that I thought could have been woven together by a better writer into making a really good episode. This could have been so much better. It just seemed like they tried to explain everything that happened. Poorly. Yeah. So many little things in there just bothered me. And we made a lot of fun of this episode. It's not the worst episode by any means. Right. But I just, I think it could have been so much better. Absolutely. But I still had a great time, Dana, talking with you about this episode. Now we are off, Dana, until after the new year. We will, however, return on Friday, January 5th with another episode that I'm sure we are both going to love and the children shall lead. Dana, have a great holiday, a great new year, and I look forward to jumping into 2024 with uh, the rest of season three, Dana. Well, Dan, as always, thanks for doing the show. It's always fun to get together with you and talk about this. You enjoy yourself over the holidays. Safe travels. Enjoy yourself. We'll see you in the new year. And to all of our listeners, have a wonderful holiday season. Enjoy time with your families. Relax a little bit and join us back again on January 5th. Do have a safe holiday season. Until we meet again, live long and prosper. Thanks once again for listening to Damn It Jim, the podcast. We'd love to hear from you. Please send us an email at dammitjimpodcast at gmail.com or join the discussion on Facebook, Instagram, X, or YouTube. You can also call the Dammit Jim hotline at 509-676-6298. Dan and Dana are off for the holidays. Make sure to join them on January 5th for the episode And the Children Shall Lead. Enjoy the rest of your week. Have a wonderful holiday. And until we meet again, remember to live long and prosper. This has been a Ramble Jar production.